This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Over and Back's Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is... Who were the pioneers of women's pro basketball? Hello, and welcome back to Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason Mann, and my special guest today, she is the author of Mad Seasons, the story of the first women's professional basketball league, Kara uh, Porter. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So... What made you become interested in the story of the WBL and made you want to write a book about uh, about the league? Well, I, I ran across a, a piece of memorabilia. I, th- I think it was a media guide and uh, was just kind of leafing through it. And I was seeing some names I recognized, like Nancy Lieberman, and, and I was saying, what is I had never heard of this women's professional basketball league, and um, and I thought, I wonder why I've never heard of that. Of course, frankly, even the NBA wasn't usually broadcast a lot in Kansas where I was growing up, but still. And so when I tried to do some research on it on the Internet, I still couldn't find anything on it. So I kind of started going from there and just thought, somebody needs to write about this, and it, it went from being an article to being a book. Yeah, and um, you know, there's there's so many fascinating aspects to the you know just women's uh, basketball in the decade itself, leading to the pro league. I mean, the uh, the women's game really grew in colleges and in high schools in the '70s after you know Title IX passes in 1973. I, I think it's easy to take for granted that uh, high schools and college have basketball programs for women's for for women and for girls, but that certainly really wasn't the uh, uh, the case. I mean, the um, you know the first generation of um, of WBL players coming into the league in 1978, a lot of them, you know, really had to, didn't come from a lot of organized programs. They really had to make it, you know, if they were really dedicated and really cared about it, they really had to search to be able to develop their skills and to find, you know, avenues to be able to play. Oh, absolutely. A lot of the players 
had maybe played for possibly a year in high school. Often it wasn't even on organized teams. Um, if they had any college ball, sometimes they had to put together their own team, and maybe they would try to get a high school uh, like a, uh, or a, a sophomore to coach the team. They would have to iron the numbers on their shirts. They didn't have any trainers. They, they would have to coach themselves sometimes. Um, here at the University of Utah, if you know, they would play like back to back to back three games in one day, and that was it. That was the season, and um, it, it, so really, a lot of them didn't have uh, anything like what we would expect today, where you'd have girls at young ages playing, and certainly by junior high, and then in high school, and very sophisticated college programs. It's it's night and day. A really important moment for um, the development of women's basketball in the United States is, uh, you know, with the growth of the college game, there is uh, women's basketball at the 1976 Olympics, um, mm-hmm. make, making its debut in Montreal, and um, some some great talent with the U.S. team that year. Um, Lucia Harris of Delta State, who was a tremendous college player. Uh, also, Ann Myers, who was uh, from UCLA, Nancy Dunkel, a very young Nancy Lieberman, um, a Pat Head, later, of course, Pat Summit, the the, the great, uh, the late great coach for University of Tennessee. So, uh, a lot of talent going on there. They the the U.S. women uh, get a silver medal against the the, the Russia. The USSR was just a tremendous powerhouse in women's uh, basketball. Really a, a, ahead of the curve on that, and and had. Um, some tremendous players, but that was definitely a great showing for the United States team and was, you know, a, um, I, I think part of the genesis of showing that there was something that, you know, could be called here and, and, and developed even further. Right. The United States had actually shocked everyone by, by doing well enough to even qualify, you know, when they actually showed up at the training facility, you know, that they had made it to the Olympics. They weren't, they weren't even ready for them. <laughs> Nobody expected them to, to do anything um, at that point, and then getting the silver was was fantastic. I mean, everybody knew that there was only one possibility for the gold. I mean, the star of the Russian team, I believe, did not lose a game for 17 years, and so and she was just there's never been anything before or, or after like her. Um, but the 76 team did well. It was kind of if you look at the team photo for that year, it's kind of a who's who in women's basketball at the time. And a lot of people, I mean, everyone I knew watched the Olympics back, especially back then. Remember, there wasn't a lot of alternative programming. And so people were glued to the Olympics back then. And here we had this, the first time ever that women played basketball in 1976, and then they did well. It was everything that that anyone could have hoped for. And one of the early stars of um, women's basketball during the uh, 70s was uh, Karen Logan, who had been a a college star at Utah State, who had uh, become um, nationally known. She uh, on national TV, she actually beat uh, Jerry West in a game of horse. Um, she also barnstormed with the All-American Redheads, who were a traveling uh, women's barnstorming team, actually had been famous for quite a long time. Yeah, despite that, you know, was not a nationally, you know, had some national success, but certainly, um, you know, if she had had the skills that she had and she'd been a man, she'd been a household name. She talks about um, 
I don't know how many years I've spent shooting alone in gyms. I can't think of a woman in my sport who has made anything of herself, you know, kind of showing a uh, showing her to be um, a, a bit dispirited about the situation um, at the time. But you know, was one of the um, you, you was able to kind of be one of the stars that sort of spearheaded the initial uh, formation of the uh, of the WBL. Uh, Bill Byrne, who was the was the founder of the league and uh, had been a World Football League executive. What was kind of the genesis behind uh, forming the WBL? Well, Bill Byrne um, was well entrepreneur. I think is the word he preferred. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And and he, he just always had something going. You know, I think I'll try this. I think I'll try the, you know, an alternative football league. I think I'll try an alternative softball league. And um, and he was aware of Karen Logan, and, and a lot of people were, actually, at the time. She she was really pretty well known. I mean, she, her, her um, horse game against Jerry West, you know, was supposed to be reminiscent of the Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs game that had had an enormous audience, including my family. And and it had been a big deal. And she had actually been profiled in, in Sports Illustrated, who just said great things about her. James Michener, who, of course, is a famous author, he actually did a piece on Karen Logan um, for a magazine and, and had all of these fantastic things to say about her. She, she was just tremendous. And, of course, Bill Byrne would have to reach out to Karen Logan. Anyone would have to if he wanted to form a league. Um, there had been an attempt a little earlier, like a year earlier, 1977. It didn't go anywhere. So Bill Byrne thought, you know what, I'm going to try this. He, he figured with Title IX, a lot of girls were going to be playing, and he was right about that. You know, the numbers were, were skyrocketing. And so he thought – you know what, women's basketball, this may be the ground floor. So he, even though most of his friends thought he was nuts, he, he went for it. And so the league formed with uh, eight franchises, uh, cost $50,000 per team, um, debuted in 1978-1979. The Iowa Cornets, the New Jersey Gems, Milwaukee Does, Chicago Hustle, Minnesota Phillies, Dayton Rockets, New York Stars, and Houston Angels. Um, you know, one early issue is that some of the top players of the time, Lucia Harris and Myers and, uh, and, and Carol Blachowski, they opted not to join the league. The, the 1980 Olympics were looming and a lot of the players wanted to keep their amateur status for that. Of course, eventually the, the United States boycotted those Olympics, but that wouldn't have been known at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of evident early on that the league sort of lacks organization and that the owners lack money. But the uh, the, the league did begin with all the uh, teams uh, intact in with the, from the beginning to the end of the season, which would certainly be an accomplishment for the league in the in future seasons. Uh, and a, you know, a couple of the really the top players for the first season were Rita Easterling, who was MVP, um, played for Chicago. And uh, Molly Bolin of the uh, Iowa Cornets, who was a uh, machine gun Molly, known for her amazing uh, scoring outbursts. Um, what were um, some of the things that stood out about those two or anybody else in the first season? Um, well, and they, 
the, they were lucky, I think, to get through the first season. They kind of had to scramble a little bit with one of the franchises. But really that first season, I, I think, was a relative success. I mean, they did get some grief for the names of some of the teams. That, like you just read off the Doe's. Of course, that was supposed to be a play on the Bucks. You know, they were in Milwaukee and the Houston Angels and the Hustle and and some women were kind of offended by the names because they would say, "Well, that the, what are you doing? Those are why are you giving these feminine names to the team?" But and they had trouble selling tickets to women, interestingly, during that period. But the first season itself was 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 really a pretty good one. I mean, Rita Easterling, who was very fast. Uh, just kind of a little buzz around the court. And she's someone who could score, you know, she could do 21 assists in a game, uh, no problem. She was she was very respected. She got beat up a lot. The other teams would kind of, they knew who to focus on sometimes. Um, and Molly Boland, Machine Gun Molly, uh, the Washington Post gave her that name because she would shoot early and often, and, and she had uncanny... She, um, accuracy it was amazing um she she could just shoot from anywhere yeah there there's a great highlight reel on youtube one of the very very few footages uh, uh, things of footage of the wbl uh, of one of her you know great scoring games that i recommend anyone listening to this check out because it's really impressive to see um you know her her you, you just had a, a great form and you know clearly was a great shooter and you know and, and a great scorer and, and a pretty exciting player um in the league she was co-mvp in the second season of the league with 32.8 points per game so obviously quite a um quite a gunner and, and you know it seemed like the quality of play was pretty strong um you really throughout but the shooting percentages were pretty similar to um what was happening in the NBA, you know, you, you, you might expect with, you know, um, organized women's basketball on a large scale being still fairly new, there would be, it would take a while to develop talent. And, and that certainly would be the case in, in some respects, but uh, you know, certainly there, there was some great talent there and, and some great, it seems like there was some great play in the league, um, especially in the first season. Uh, um, did you have access to any, footage of the league when you were writing the book is have you been able to see you know very much i do i have i have several games i uh, my research was pretty extensive and so i got film from wgn and i got um, home video I, I even still i probably only have maybe a dozen games i mean i do have some of the key games interestingly i have i just lucked out and got some of the more controversial games um for example the one where the chicago coach attacked the, the referee <laughs> <laughs> and the fans mobbed uh you know then rushed out onto the court i ended up with that game i ended up with the very last game you know the championship game um so i've got some I've got some good ones and i have some of of molly and it is a sight to see and, and of course if, if, if you've read the book then you know how her career was turned against her she really seemed to pay a price for the just and 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 all the players. I mean, dealt with all these you know this terrible travel accommodations in a lot of cases, and um, you know late 
late payments and just you know suffering a lot of uh difficulties in just you know being a professional athlete and all the travel and just the lack of money that was there and then yeah she really you you really detail her life her you know the, her time very well and and talking about the her career being used against her in that uh, divorce case unfortunately and kind of how it tore her family apart and how um you know the the justice system in used in a very sexist way uh, against her being, you know, more of the of the having the more traditional, you know, career at the time being away and and the way that was used against her to, you know, to um, to to take the custody away from her, you know, was was very unfortunate. It, it was very interesting, and into it turned out to be a hugely important case in in Iowa. But just and I, and I have the the trial transcript of that, I was able to get a hold of Molly's lawyer who, with Molly's permission, gave me her, the entire court file. And, uh, and it was just fascinating because the exhibits were things like the, their, their uh, media guides, etc. And here's the lawyer, this is a year after, the, you know, it's all over, here's the lawyer cross-examining her about her road games. And if it had been an NBA player who had road games, nobody would even have thought anything. And here they that they were using that to take custody from her that she had to go to road games in her job. Uh, it was it was really interesting. And, and she did ultimately, you know, prevail in that. But it, it was a pretty painful experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one thing that you do a really good job detailing in the book, and it's a, it's such a great book and such great research, you obviously went into it. But one thing is the uh, the sexism in the media coverage of the time of just uh, you know you detail so many examples of articles of you know there's sporting news column where are you uneasy with women's sports I am there's this. Um, the whole idea of controversy over you know male reporters being in the women's locker room and the the difficulties involved in that and just the the writing columns being written about you know men the, the male columnists writing about like oh you know being titillated by the idea of going into women's locker room and just just the really really gross um types of things being written about the league and not not just the you know lack of seriousness that it's being taken i mean that's offensive enough but just the just the idea of that you know the, the, these women are just here to be looked at and, and offer nothing else just that that attitude that was prevalent in that coverage is really um it, it probably shouldn't have shocked me but it definitely just the i guess the blatant um nature of it really did kind of shock me yeah it, it's a bit shocking in that the kinds of things that were written about the women and and the just the concept of women in sports generally would really be surprising if we saw them today. One interesting thing that Karen Logan told me was she said, you know, you, you do have to take into account what the times were in the 70s. It's why it didn't really bother her as much as it should have when she was putting, helping put together the very first team. And with her assistance, they were looking for attractive players, you know, and they were looking for players that had certain features and and several teams had certain color ratios that they were expected to follow and and then and these and the media people I, I think they were actually often were trying to be supportive, I think. I mean 
but I don't think they even realized what it sounded like to say, hey, some of these players weren't bad looking. Right. I mean, what, message is that? <laughs> what message is that sending? Yeah, right. That's that's a good point. I mean, that yeah, not a lot of it is necessarily negative and, and intend to be negative, but but it's obviously just um, you know the the attitudes are, are are you know in many cases still not good, but um, at least people I think know better than to be that blatantly sexist in in, in writing today in sports writing and other things. One of the things I mentioned in the in the book was about the, a fan that had sold a collection of his photographs he, he i think he had front row seats um online and and i actually was the person that purchased those and when i got them they had some great photos in there but a huge percentage of them were of the posteriors oh. of of some of the players and i just it, way too many to be coincidental sure. and i thought well okay yeah <laughs> Uh, yeah that's that wow um so you mentioned you know one issue that the the league definitely there was some complaints is the uh, the idea of of promoting um you know particularly the, the white players uh, ahead of a lot of the uh, black players in the league and the way that you know the the, the top players like uh, you know Janie Fincher or you know women who were usually who were, who were often who were white and who were blonde and considered attractive who were promoted there, there was certainly frustrations with that among a lot of people you know just the idea of, of selling sex in the first place and you know why can't it be about the you know the talent of the players in the league but also just um, obviously the um, the the league conceding sort of the reality by um by who it promoted and um it reminds me of sort of uh, of the early years of the nba honestly i mean uh, obviously it took a while for the nba to uh to, to fully integrate with uh black players and, and as it became a majority black league there was a lot of angst over whether that would would turn off white audiences and i'm sure that there were similar concerns in the wbl uh, i think that's well, I know that's true. I I ended up talking to I think probably a hundred players or and or coaches and or owners, and and the league. You know, for example, if, if they wanted to do a promotion, their first call was going to be to somebody like like the Young Twins, for example, Kay Young, who later actually married Bill Cower, the Pittsburgh Steelers coach, and and her twin sister Faye Young, and. People wanted them. Promotional appearances wanted them. They were attractive and young and, and blonde, and, and and even to the point where they would expect them to miss practice to just go do all these things. And they and they kind of were like, "Look, we want to help the team, but we really want to practice." And there were and Janie, of course, you know, Janie had Janie Fincher, but in the Chicago papers, she was so well known that they only used the word Janie in in most of their headlines. Um, you know, Janie scores 52, or Janie traded, you know, that kind of thing. So she was extremely well-known in Chicago, and she had her own poster. Molly Bolin, of course, had Machine Gun Molly had her own poster, which was also used against her in her divorce trial um, as as some kind of, you know, lack of wholesomeness or something. And there were very few African-American players, for example, who ever had any promotional opportunities. 
so looking at uh, the the next season in um, in 1980, um, a, a big star who joins the league is um, Ann Myers, who was the first player to be part of the U.S. national team while still in high school, the first woman to sign a four-year athletic scholarship for college at UCLA, and also the only woman to sign a contract with an NBA team. She had uh, signed a contract with the Pacers and had a tryout. Um, in 1979, it was really a subject of, of course, a lot of interest in, in the um, uh, unusual uh, um, event for her trying out for the team. And it was definitely something I, I read her book as well. And it definitely seemed like a situation where she legitimately thought that she had a chance to make the team. But it turned out to, you know, she was cut on the third day and she felt sort of that she didn't necessarily get a you know fully legitimate shot at uh, making the team and there was definitely a lot of criticism from a lot of people of course you know within the NBA itself and you know even within the WBL which had you know was still in its infancy and a lot of a lot of the players felt that you know this was detracting from what they were doing in the WBL it was extremely controversial and it was i guess it was one time that the men's sport and the women's sport Kind of seemed to agree um, because they were they were all freaking out about it. Um, one thing that Ann Myers told me was basically who who wouldn't if you're given that shot and and there was some guaranteed money with it who wouldn't do it and and I actually when I spoke with a lot of the WBA BL players when I was researching the book a lot of them said you know they probably would feel different now than they did at the time but at the time. There was a very clear split. A number of them thought, what's this thing about women's basketball that, that you're choosing the NBA? You know, what are you, you're betraying your gender, et cetera. And then there were others who were like, you know, she's going to make more money doing that. And um, it, it was extremely controversial. And, of course, people were, were all, you know, it's a publicity stunt. It's, you know, it was but it certainly got a lot of coverage. And then when she got cut and she was going to move into the WBL, she already had built-in publicity. <laughs> yeah, and, and of course she'd been, you know, a fairly big, you know, had gotten a lot of attention at, you know, UCLA, of course, which had famously had a great men's program and, and certainly would have been one of the more high-profile women's programs at the, at the time. Uh, also had a national 7-Up commercial with Magic Johnson and had done some um, – national tv appearances with abc superstars as well where a, a lot of um women athletes at the time were were able to be featured you know that necessarily didn't have the most large prominent sports but that was sort of a platform for um athletes of all different types of uh, sports to be able to you know um showcase themselves and that was uh, you know Im important for uh, her fame and for helping um get some attention for the league as well it was i mean i think Anybody with a passing knowledge of sports, I think, knew who Ann Myers was, even if they didn't watch uh, basketball. And if they watched basketball after she got on there, they would have seen two things. One, they would have seen tremendous skill. I mean, she had four triple-doubles, I believe, in the season that she played. And and it, things were a little harder then. I mean, they didn't have the the, the moved-in you know, three-point line. They were using the same one as the men and all that. So... Um, she was terrific. She would, they would also see her getting mugged a lot because she was always the best player on the team. And so, you know, maybe you'd triple her, team her, quadruple team her, <laughs> you know, 
but she because they had to. She was a terrific player. Yeah, and looking at her stats for 1980, the season that she, only season she played, she was co-MVP that year with Molly Bowen. She had 22.2 points per game, 10.3 rebounds, 5.9 assists, and 4.9 steals. So uh, very versatile in in terms of her uh, production. Um, but she did not play the 1981 season after she after there were issues with uh, her not being paid by the team. And um, I mean, that was really a common complaint um, among um, a, a lot of the players. I, I think you wrote that more than half of the players experienced late or no paychecks in the league. And, and the 1980 season, there was a very large expansion, um, you know, like almost, I, I think from, was it 12 teams to 18 teams? Or it was a, it was a very large expansion that did seem, you know, a pretty unwise thing to do to try, you know, that like moving really, really fast when you're just trying to get a foothold in, uh, you know, in the consciousness. Yeah. The, the expansion was too early and too much. And, and one problem was that there wasn't necessarily um, as as good a screening of potential team owners as as there should have been in some instances. And in some instances, there were you know I, I've seen, for example, the prospectuses that were put together for the you know franchises, and I'd go I'd look at them and I'd go, hmm, that was pretty optimistic in terms of what you expected to sell in terms of you know memorabilia or you know three getting 3000 people per game that early so it it just led to some more problems and and you know franchises would fold and that would create problems people weren't getting paid sometimes the players would get maybe one meal a day that's all they could afford and and maybe their parents would send food and they would share and it was, you know, and then of course these women that weren't earning a lot of, uh, they would, they would, they thought that Ann Myers and Nancy Lieberman and some of these others were getting these huge salaries, and then they thought they weren't getting paid, which they really weren't, and so that would, it just raised all sorts of issues. Yeah, I mean, obviously creating, you know, um, lack of morale and certainly, you know, some jealousy and. And, and all that and that really w- reared its ugly head uh, especially in the third season the the, the minnesota phillies make a uh, get a lot of attention in uh march 21st 1981 a a protest by eight players and their coach prior to a game in chicago they walk off the court just before tip-off refuse to um return and they forfeit the game and then the um the WBL commissioner suspended uh, them indefinitely and they finish out the season using replacement players. And that's sort of seen as a, um, you know, as almost a point of no return for the league where it was something that uh, they couldn't come back from. Although, you know, at that point the finances were, were probably so bad that it's hard to believe they were coming back from that anyway. Yeah. There's some controversy as to whether that killed WBL, which is what the commissioner says, or whether it was just a sign of what was going to happen anyway. I mean, it's a, it's a stark scene to think about those players sitting in that van and they've been barricaded into the parking lot. You know, they, it's a stalemate and the, the commissioner's on the bus trying to get them to, to come back in and play. I mean, it's just kind of a, a bad thing. They're in New England, uh, the New England Gulls had kind of refused to play earlier 
until they were just given the gate receipts, which were not very much, and then they had to pay the refs themselves. So there had been some problems. The, the, the California Dreams had had an incident where they, they didn't have return tickets. They were on a road tri- game, and didn't, they realized that they had not been given return tickets. And one of the players' parents actually bought them all re- return tickets. She didn't even know it at the time. And so there were just a lot of financial problems. One problem, though, is they they actually did have some potential sources of funds. Um, like I mentioned, Marshall Geller, who was behind the San Francisco team, and 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 I've documented this. He he his group had the funds, and they really were going to give the first million dollar contract. You know, the instant the 1980 Olympics, they were going to fly there to Russia, and as soon as it was over. And, and the women didn't have to have their amateur status anymore. He was going to present a million-dollar check, and they had the funds. I mean, I've seen the documentation. So they had some, but they just couldn't. I mean, the Olympics are canceled. Um, and even Nancy Lieberman, who was the most amazing thing ever, <laughs> um, even she couldn't save a league, a league in that kind of situation. Yeah. Well, what, what made her such an outstanding all-around player? You know, maybe it's because of the, you know, the street ball or whatever she played, but one thing that was remarkable, I mean, I read literally hundreds if not thousands of media accounts. Um, I read letters to the league. I read everything, and and it was just a different world when they were talking about Nancy Lieberman. You'd have some sports writer who either had said really kind of rude things (laughs) about the league or would refuse to go to a game, sometimes they would just put in the column, I will not go to a women's game. And they would just write that in there. And all of a sudden, when they had a chance to see Nancy Lieberman play, it was amazing. It was like, holy cow, that woman could play. And and it was, she was, I mean, I have a theory that, I don't know if it's right or not, but one thing that Nancy Lieberman did was, and I'm quoting someone now, but she played like a man is at least what they were saying about her at the time. Um, she she played aggressively. She was extraordinarily talented. She was quick. She would do clever things. I mean, she would do things that women had never done before. The you know that now are common, but the you know the redirect or the you know a little bit of the trick pass. You know, a lot of women had never even played basketball you know, in an organized fashion just a couple of years earlier. And here she is doing behind the back or doing, you know, look right past left, things that are just expected today, but it just blew people's minds. Yeah, it seems like the league, you know, was shut down right at the point in which there was really, you know, obviously Nancy Lieberman being uh, the, 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 the prime example, but some really great talent, you know, coming into the league, um, you know, uh, Carol Blaszczowski and, you know, others really were, you know, adding some really some potential star, star power to the league. And if they'd just been able to hang on and been able to, um, you know, just give it a few more years or you'd have more realistic expectations about finances or, or what have you, it, it may have been the league may have been able to, to survive. At least it seems that way. You know, I think that's true. I, I, I think that you had to have enough owners that that could bear the losses because you were going to have losses, right? I mean, you, you, 
I, I've read histories of the early NBA or of the ABA, or, you know, they were going to have losses they needed to bear, and they just couldn't do enough of it. I mean, and even the owners that tried, sometimes it was taken out of their hands. I mean, George Nissen, the owner of the Iowa Cornets, which was a great franchise, and and then he has to essentially ends up giving up his team because when he's over in Iran, they there's a coup, and the people he's working with are executed, and he barely gets out of the country alive. And and that caused him enormous financial losses, and he basically had to give up the cornets. They, I mean, who would expect that? The, the, somebody like the Blaze, they could have gotten, I mean, Blazowski, Carol Blazowski. If they'd had more time, they would have had some, some really awesome teams. What are some of the, in doing the research and writing the book, what are some of the most fascinating stories um, that that you were able to write about? Well, and some of them I've mentioned. I thought Molly Bolins was, was fascinating. Um, I personally found interesting the whole history of the women's ball. I mean, it may not seem interesting, but I actually took me a lot to piece together. How did they even come up with the women's basketball? Why is it that size? You know, what what are the differences? It's just an interest. I mean, to me, that was one of the most fun things that I did was interviewing those people about the baby ball, as yeah, <laughs> as they called it. Um, and eventually that ball that that ball became the ball that was adopted across women's basketball at all levels it, it took a while it took till you know, it took a few years for that to really um happen and then there was a lot of controversy over the idea of just playing with a smaller ball and, and what that said about the you know the a lot of the women feeling like oh it makes us seem inferior by, by playing with this ball and it was interesting because i will bet you that most people have no idea that the reason that we have the women's ball today um, is because of the WBL. You know, they were looking for something different, and and they and Bill Byrne was persuaded that smaller hands, smaller ball. There you go. And um, but it was controversial with with women. But one of the things that I think Karen Logan pointed out at the time was, well, wait a minute, we we have different. You know, um, I can't remember if she said shot put or discus or golf, whatever she was pointing out. We tennis, the lines are different. We already make adjustments for women's physiology, um, and and why not with the ball? But it was still a very hot, hot topic. And of course, one of the 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 saddest stories is the uh, that that you write about the, the murder of uh, of Connie Kunzman and uh, the, the the tragedy of the end of her life and how that of course casts a pall on you know all the players in the league who know her and um and the sadness of um it, it being you know quite a bit of time before you know the her whereabouts are actually discovered and they they can confirm that um you know exactly what happened and just what a um you know what what a tragic event that really was it really did it was something that was mentioned by a lot of the players whether they were on her team or not she she was one of the few players that actually played all 3 years um she had just kind of this gregarious friendly personality so everybody knew her and liked her you know she was very popular um very enthusiastic and all that, and so for her to first disappear and then 
have have the individual confess, but for them not to be able to find the body. Um, that actually was very interesting to me too, because her family, of course, was so desperate. They they hired a psychic, you know, to try to help them find her body. Um, and here's the team for quite some period of time wondering, you know, what's happened. I had more than one of them mention to me that that when they knew that she supposedly had been murdered, that they couldn't find the body, and then they would hear noises in their apartment or something, and they would they would freak out. It was it was very sad, and she was mentioned by many people um, as somebody they remembered, and and how horrible it was with what happened to her. A couple of the interesting anecdotes that you write about that are um, um, that that I think are interesting is one is. Uh, Nancy Welling being traded uh, 30 minutes before a game from the um, for, from Iowa to Minnesota. How that uh, just uh, that's an, just one of those great um, you, you know pr- probably only in the usually when we talk about the ABA we say the, that's only in the ABA. Well, in this case, only in the uh, WBL. But that's that's a great um, you know it can only happen then kind of thing. <laughs> right, I do remember that she was she just they oh, go now go to the other locker room. So. And so there she was. Um, those things were, were were nutty. There were a few other things that are just kind of nutty, like when how how the owners of the Houston team totally freaked out when they found out that one of their key players was pregnant. And she's like, "That's okay. I'm okay." You know this. It's and and they were like, uh, and they made her sign this <laughs> this big long statement that she wouldn't hold them responsible for anything, and, and then they still wouldn't play her because they just couldn't couldn't figure out what to do with the play uh, with the pregnant player and there there were some funny some funny stories like that yeah there's a new jersey player um who um when they didn't have the money for her she went up to the um to the ticket booth and uh and and got her three hundred dollars that way um that that, that's a pretty good story as well yeah she just stood there with her palm out and just took the the money from the people and then there was another where there was a preseason game and the, the team from New Orleans refused to come, and so they, they the, um, uh, the 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 home team just I believe they just called the the New England players I think it, no the New Jersey players down, and they just had them I don't know how they got them but they just had them put on some other kind of uniforms probably I'm guessing home or away I can't remember now anyway and they would just introduce them as if they were really <laughs> players from the New yes. Orleans side yes. you know so here's this this you know very short Caucasian woman being introduced as a very large African-American woman. And it was pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, So what do you see as the WBL's ultimate legacy? Um, I think it's a couple of things. A a lot of the women who played in WBL went on to have significant influence in, in basketball. You know, they went on to coach, um, one player went on to become president of the WNBA, uh, Donna Giles, who was later Donna Orinder. And so th- they learned a lot, I think, from those lessons. Interestingly, I have been called by um, owners uh, or potential investors in the WNBA and just to kind of sort of pick my brain a little bit about maybe what some of the other owners – would have done differently now, you know, and, and like there's the debate. Do you go with the small venue that maybe seems less big time 
or do you go with the the glamorous venue? You know, so I've actually had calls from from those types of individuals, and there are people who, of course, still remember uh, the game. And more important, but a few years ago, I started uh, hearing from people whose parents, whose mothers, played in the WBL, and and they are so proud of that. You know, they, some football players, basketball players. It's really fun to be watching TV and have somebody, you know, be watching a football game or something, a basketball game, and have them talking about a player and then saying, well, of course, his mother was a fantastic basketball player. You know, I mean, this is the first generation we're getting that. And that's obviously, you know, uh, it's really great that there are, you know, quite a few of the WBL players were able to have, you know, uh, important roles in the WNBA and, and, and how that was able to, to spread the legacy. Maybe, maybe even if the the exploits of the WBL itself aren't really that well known, just the fact that, you know, it was able to at least accomplish that, even if, you know, it, it didn't work out very well as a pro league, um, you know, that, that's certainly something that... Um, is quite uh, obviously a positive influence. I think so. They learned, the people learned a lot. I mean, a lot of the people involved with that league may went on to even coaching in men's leagues and things like that. And they, they did learn things like what rules maybe should be adapted for the women's game. Or, you know, they just, they just learned a lot. And of course the ball is a lasting legacy. And, you know, I, I think it, it it may not have lasted very long, but it um, I think it did have an impact, and I think it it made things better for women's basketball. One thing I forgot to ask about, but I'll have to ask about before we go. Um, the uh, the California Dreams players being sent to Charm School. Could you uh, tell that story? Oh yes, they were sent to the the Charm School. I think it was called John Robert Power. Uh, school of charm and they learned how to set a table and they learned how to walk with the appropriate posture and balance and they learned how to put makeup on and they were the owner was roundly criticized by that it was a blistering cartoon in Ms. Magazine for example and you know the owner says hey I was just trying to give them a little bit of training uh, like you get a right now Olympic athletes actually get media training you know, to to learn how to interact. He says, I was just trying to do some of that, but uh, he he gets a lot of grief for yes. that. Yeah. Well, it's definitely something that's, you know, straight out of a league of their own, you know. Um, so it just reminded me of that very much. Um, but that's just uh, obviously another illustration of just the attitudes of the uh, time and um, it just, uh, <laughs> just kind of the, the ridiculous things that, uh, you know, these athletes uh, had to go through to, um, you know, to be pioneers and just the, you know, the sacrifices they, they were able to make to, um, you know, really help uh, develop the game and to, you know, pass it on to the next generation. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't happen today, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so either. So, uh, Is there anything else you'd like to bring up before we go? No, I just, I just really appreciate the, you know, the opportunity to talk about the WBL. It, it doesn't get its due, um, and so this, this, I've appreciated this opportunity. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you so much for being on the uh, program. And uh, for listeners, definitely highly recommend uh, checking out uh, Mad Seasons, the story of the first women's professional basketball league. And, uh, and, and Kara, thank you again so much for your time. 
Uh, And everyone, of course, thanks for uh, checking us out. You can find us um, on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you uh, listen to your podcast. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA. So thanks again for listening, and we'll be back again soon. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.